Indeed, the United States Military Academy has a long and distinguished history. Established in 1802, its stated mission continues to be to educate, train, and inspire the Corps of Cadets so that each graduate is a commissioned leader of character committed to the values of duty, honor, country, and prepared for a career of professional excellence and service to the nation as an officer in the United States Army. Six decades after its creation, that mission took on new and unusual interpretation, for their country was at war with itself. All too often, fellow alums and classmates, all trained on the west bank of the Hudson River, were pitted against one another in Civil War battle. This is the story of one prominent class that found itself caught in that tragic dilemma. This is the story of the West Point class of 1846. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. West Point. Its site dates back to the War for Independence. Some 50 miles north of New York City, George Washington was one of the first to recognize the strategic importance of the commanding plateau on the west bank of the Hudson. In 1778, Washington personally selected Thaddeus Kosciuszko, one of the heroes of Saratoga, to design the fortifications there at West Point. There, soldiers of the Continental Army constructed forts, batteries, and redoubts, even extended a 150-ton iron chain across the Hudson to control river traffic. The next year, Washington transferred his headquarters to the site. Despite the treason of Benedict Arnold, Fortress West Point was never captured by the British and remains the oldest continuously occupied military post in America. After the nation's independence had been won, soldiers and legislators, including Washington, Henry Knox, Alexander Hamilton, and John Adams, all desiring to eliminate America's wartime dependence on foreign engineers, urged the creation of an institution devoted to the arts and sciences of warfare. And so it would be in 1802. The third president, Thomas Jefferson, signed legislation which established the United States Military Academy. He did so receiving assurance that those who would attend the academy would be representative of a democratic society and would exemplify duty, honor, and country. It remains a place where visitors truly wish walls and trees could talk setting that screams history and whispers of fate and turning and twisting destiny. Since its establishment, West Point has taken young men and women forever changing their lives and in some instances, the very nation that fostered them. An example of such a curious event took place Friday, the 3rd of June, 
1842. Gibson Butcher arrived at the steamboat landing on the Hudson. He was from the Old Dominion State and was the first West Point appointee for first-term Virginia Congressman Samuel L. Hayes. Butcher's strength in mathematics got him his appointment. His weakness with discipline ensured his departure. He simply left and told no one. On his way home, he stopped on the West Fork River between Weston and Clarksburg, then Virginia, and notified an interested young constable of 18 who was one of four who had taken an initial exam with him. Sensing opportunity, the constable soon thereafter borrowed a horse and, accompanied by a young slave, headed for Clarksburg to catch the stage for Washington City. He was determined to see Congressman Hayes. In Clarksburg, the two found they'd missed the stage. Twenty miles later at Grafton, they caught up to it. Leaving his borrowed horse with the slave, the constable pushed into Maryland and at the Green Valley Depot caught the B&O and by rail made his way to the nation's capital. It was Friday, June 17th. And when approached, Congressman Hayes was completely unaware that his first appointment had gone home. Standing before him, the constable produced recommendations. One stated that the young man's ancestry was mostly dead, and the candidate was a destitute orphan. That same day, Hayes wrote Secretary of War John C. Spencer, and the very next day, Spencer endorsed the change of candidates. Paper signed by President John Tyler, the 18-year-old from Western Virginia headed northward. The deadline for new appointees was only two days away. Upon reaching New York City, he paid a 50-cent fare for the 50-mile ride up the Hudson. Arriving Monday, June 20th, he made it. Before him, rising from the landing, a 40-acre plane. Charles Dickens had just paid the Academy a visit. Now, the arrival of one who could easily have been a character in one of Dickens' novels. 121 had already arrived, the largest class in the Academy's 40-year history. A plebe from Fredericksburg, Virginia, Dabney Herndon Maury, watched the last candidate climb the winding path from the river. His countenance Sturdy step, thin lips clamped shut, and cold blue-gray eyes made an impression. Maury pointed to others and said, That fellow looks as if he's come to stay. Indeed, he would, this young man from Western Virginia, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. His beginning was tenuous, but as Maury noted, he was determined of the 122, all then 26 states were represented. Another of that assemblage had been there for some time. Legally, he was too young to actually be there. But there he was at 15 years and seven months. The son of a well-to-do Philadelphia surgeon, Cadet George Brenton McClellan. Even at his young age, he had already completed two years of study at the University of Pennsylvania. He had command of language, classics, and modern literature, but just now he was depressed. He felt alone, homesick, abandoned. He wrote, 
Not a soul here cares for or thinks of me. Indeed, the two, the young boy and the constable, would prove to be the most illustrious of the eventual 59 who would comprise the class of 1846. The two opposite ends of the social spectrum. Yet here they were at a place where they were now equals. Here they were plebes, and according to upperclassmen, they were things, animals, reptiles, and beasts. As another put it, the two cadets were part of the only society of human beings that I have known in which the standing of an individual is dependent wholly on his merit as far as they can be ascertained without influences. All 122 had arrived, but would they stay? Two types of examinations were necessary to narrow the number to those duly qualified. One was a physical. Three doctors probed limbs for ringbone and spavin. Chests were thumped for soundness of wind. Teeth examined for decay. Feet inspected for bunions. They were measured, weighed. Eyesight was important. The ancient Persians and Romans used the Big Dipper to assess their soldiers' vision, asked to look at the second star in the asterism's handle. They had to see that there was not one star, but two, Alcor and Miser. At West Point, prospective cadets were asked to correctly identify the detail of a dime held at the far end of the examining room. Candidates had to call whether it was head or tails. If you survived all that, the last days of June subjected all to the trial of recitation. A reviewing board determined if each had the necessary skill to read and write, and enough math to do reductions, proportions, and fractions. Young McClellan breezed through. Jackson was in a world of trouble with the latter. His session before the board was painful. There, both cuffs of his sleeves mopped away sweat that streamed down his face. When told he could return to his seat, there were suppressed smiles on the faces of the board. On June 24th, a list of duly qualified was posted. The two initial exams weeded out 30 122 were down to 92. The very last name, the last to qualify, was Tom Jackson. Now came haircuts in a tent by a barber named Joe. They were drilled twice a day. As a shuffling mob, they marched everywhere. Each issued two blankets, one to sleep on, one to sleep under. Cadets in blankets reeked of the cleaning process, rancid lanolin, all smelled until it finally wore off. Each cadet was paired with a bunkie. In rigid silence to the dining hall, they would go three times a day. The command, take seats, meant 20 scrambling minutes of being hazed, passing bowls, being hazed, eating and being hazed. Then, squad, rise. On one occasion, Thomas J. Lowe was asked, Plebe, pass up the bread. Lowe did not respond. The upperclassmen repeated the request, this time with earthy qualification. 
to that, fourth classman Lowe asked, Did you address that remark to me, sir? Yes, you damned plebe. Lowe slowly got up, walked to the end of the table, and punched the upperclassman out. He returned quietly and sat down. That got him a trip to the guardhouse, but few hazed Thomas J. Lowe after that. Breakfast consisted of bread and butter with hash made of peeled and cut potatoes boiled with leathery chunks of meat left over from the day before. There were concoctions liberally called gravy and coffee. Dinner was roast beef with more boiled potatoes and sometimes boiled beef and rice. In summer, there was bread, butter, and tea. And at first, all these plebes longed to be anywhere but where they were. On the grounds, there were no paved walkways, no gas lights. Crowded rooms were lit by lamps filled with whale oil. No furnaces, no bathrooms, no railroad or telegraph ran to the site. The end of July meant out of the barracks and into summer encampment. Three cadets in a tent, ten feet square. The bark of a morning gun got them up every day at 4 a.m. Drill was at 5. At 6.30, they marched to the dining hall for breakfast. Parade was at 8. Infantry or artillery drill took up the rest of the morning. Dinner, then another drill in the afternoon. Parade came at 6 p.m. Supper and stag dances until 9. Bed by 10 o'clock. Same routine, day after day after day. All their belongings contained in a two-foot square box. Their laundry done at 50 cents a week. Summer encampment ended August 31st at 11.30 a.m. Now their routine would be in classrooms and barracks. And those barracks all had to be in order. If not, there was the ever-present risk of demerit. Bedsteads against the wall farthest from the door. Tables against the same wall. Trunks under bedsteads, lamps clean and on the mantel, dress caps neatly arranged on the shelf nearest the door, shoes blacked and neatly arranged behind the door, washstand clean and in the corner nearest to the door, looking glass between the washstand and door, books neatly arranged on the shelf farthest from the door, broom stowed behind the door. Drawings and books under the shelf farthest from the door. Muskets in gun rack with locks sprung. Bayonets in scabbards. Accouterments, sabers, cutlasses, and swords hanging over muskets. Candle and box for scrubbing utensils against the wall under the shelf nearest the door. And fireplace. Clothes hanging neatly on pegs over bedsteads. Mattresses and blankets neatly folded. Orderly board in position over the mantel, chairs when not in use under tables, and all cadets at day's end presumably in bed with lights out. Their lamps, filled with the whale oil, gave off a dim yellowish light. It smelled horrible. Enough so that with the fishy oil and its smell, the cadets sympathized with Jonah. 
Early exams divided the cadets into levels of proficiency. If a cadet had a 2.6 to 3.0, he was in the so-called aristocracy. Those marks meant thorough or best. 2.1 to 2.5 was good. 2.0 was fair. 1.1 to 1.9 was tolerable. 0.1 to 1.0 was bad or incomplete. And of course, 0.0 was complete failure. Those near the bottom were called the immortals. In the first academic year, two subjects had to be mastered, mathematics and French. Math consisted of algebra, geometry, and trigonometry. Seven out of every ten hours were committed to math. That academic discipline responsible for nine of every ten dismissals. French was unavoidable. Because so, for many of the books in the library were in French and because of Napoleon. French was the language of war. The emphasis more on reading rather than speaking it. The teaching method? Recitation. A professor or assistant explained the lesson. Then a name was called. The chosen cadet would approach the board with chalk and sponge. At attention, the cadet would be given a problem. Then he'd wheel and work it out on the blackboard. When he finished, he'd wheel and explain. All were picked each day. If one was not prepared, it was a fess. You just admitted you were not prepared to respond. When October rolled round, out came winter uniforms. It was a tough time and punctuated by constant drums which called out the schedule and changes in the schedule. Constant. One of the few times there was quiet was when it was too cold to drill. During that time, enterprising cadets made hash out of anything they could smuggle from the mess hall. They'd mash it together, toss it in a pan with butter, seasoning, and cook it, usually Saturday night. These were called Chinook orgies, and as one might expect, they were illegal. The superintendent at that time was then Captain Richard Delafield, class of 1818. He helped hammer out the rules for behavior. He was a good one to do so because when demerits were first instituted, he received the very first one. In the Academy's Code of Regulations under Article 12, Marked Discipline, there were six pages. And if that wasn't enough, there were four more pages under More Discipline. Delafield had a penchant for puns, so much so the cadets called him Dicky the Punster. Despite a target for name-calling, Delafield was a superior administrator, approachable, accessible. He improved the quality of the academy's education, but the cadets thought him a tyrant. Even staff and faculty disliked him. All this even though he was open to suggestion. One of his suggestions had to do with buttons. Cadet buttons ran down the side of their pants. He ordered them changed to the front in fly fashion. Cadets liked that. The ladies didn't. They thought it drew too much attention to sensitive areas. 
January of 1843 brought the first semi-annual examinations. Tuesday the 3rd, 8 o'clock a.m. in the library. One in particular sweated them. Other cadets misinterpreted Tom Jackson. One who did was Dabney Maury, who noted that Cadet Jackson from Virginia is a jackass. Somehow, he got the nickname Old Jack. Gaining permission, Jackson spent many Saturday afternoons on Mount Independence, there amidst the ruins of Old Fort Putnam. It was a haven for him. His mannerisms grave, reticent, physically awkward, socially ungraceful, intense, unbending, disciplined, tenacious, unnoticed. His words came out in quick, jerky, stiff sentences and were never repeated or amended. He stood five foot ten inches but looked shorter because he constantly dropped his head when he walked. Yet while studying, his posture was perfect. He sat perfectly straight because he wanted no internal organs compressed upon one another. His mental posture, equally tough. For example, once his section was caught in a downpour, all broke and ran, save he. He continued to march in the same measured fashion. Oh, how he studied for his first examinations. Before taps, he piled his great high with anthracite coal. When lamps were ordered out, he would stretch out flat on the floor and study. A later cadet, Sam Grant, took him for a fanatic, but did respect him. After the January exams, which claimed 16 more of his cadet classmates, Jackson finished 62nd in math and 88th in French. While he barely survived, another flourished. In fact, George McClellan was at the head of his class. To his sister, Frederica, he wrote, I never studied at all at home. Now I do study a little, not much, I must confess. February the 20th, 1843, brought about an important day. It was that Monday they became true cadets. At 3.30 p.m. in the chapel, they took their oaths, signed their engagements, and received their warrants. Then it was back to their monotonous routine. Now, there was an oasis nearby, a place called Benny Havens. Benny was a lovable, good-natured raconteur who ran a tavern in nearby Buttermilk Falls. A native of the Hudson River Valley, he had been a volunteer first lieutenant in the War of 1812. He had welcomed and sold spirits to cadets for over two decades. His buckwheat flapjacks and the hot flip were legendary. Even the Marquis de Lafayette dropped by on his return visit in 1824. One cadet called Havens, the only congenial soul in the entire God-forsaken place. That cadet, for only a short time a cadet, was Edgar Allan Poe. If a cadet was caught at Benny Havens, it was a dismissible offense. One who almost got caught. It was back in August 1826, and a cadet and a friend were there. 
warned of a coming instructor, they fled. Opting to take a shortcut which led up a steep path, one of the fleeing cadets lost his balance and fell some 60 feet. He broke his fall by grabbing hold to a small tree. The grab mangled a hand but saved his life. That hand belonged to the future Confederate President Jefferson Davis. In June of 1843 came examinations, and as chairman of the Board of Visitors, Winfield Scott was, as usual, in attendance. At six foot five and over 300 pounds, he was gigantic. Plebes marched to the recitation halls and performed in front of Scott and the board. Seventy-two became yearlings, third class, if you will, or sophomores. Twelve were sent home. Dead last was Kentuckian Thomas J. Lowe. That was perhaps foreshadowing, for later he was dismissed for irrepressibly questionable conduct. Third, George McClellan. Thomas Jackson settled in at 51st. Summer encampment occupied their second summer, and then in the fall of 1843, study concentrated on analytical geometry, calculus, surveying, the second half of French, English grammar, rhetoric, geography, history, the first parts of artillery, and drawing. Their instructor for that course was Robert Weir, who had an international reputation for art. A member of the Hudson River School, he taught alongside French professor Claudius Berard and math professor Albert Ensign Church. January 1844 exams rolled round, and our plotter Tom Jackson climbed to 21st in math. He improved in French from 70th to 61st. He was 58th in English grammar, but alas, 74th in drawing. Overall, lower standing, still an immortal. Yet his rigor was turning heads and bringing him some confidence. He was living up to the maxim, you may be whatever you resolve to be. And indeed, by the end of his second year, he had jumped 21 files. He was 30th in general merit. Troublemaker Lowe topped the maximum 280 demerits in a year and, as we made mention, was sent home. Everybody went home Tuesday, June 25th for a two-month furlough until 2 p.m. August 28th. Warned not to linger in New York City, the class of 1846 headed back to whence they had come. When all returned that August, Jackson bunked with New Yorker George Stoneman, who was the oldest of ten children. Their studies this academic year were science, natural philosophy, which included mechanics, optics, astronomy, and electricity, chemistry, the second year of artillery, and yet again, drawing. Science now occupied seven of every ten academic hours. Natural philosophy was taught by William H. C. Bartlett, who was reputed to be the most brilliant cadet to graduate and was acknowledged as one of the world's top scientists. Faculty was excellent, and the person who enticed many of them to serve as instructors opted to step down in August of 1845. After eight years as Superintendent Dickey the Punster Delafield, 
left. One Irish janitor noted, when the major went down to the wharf to leave the point, he was followed by many a dry eye. Now with Henry Brewerton, class of 1819, as the new superintendent, the final year of study was more artillery, mineralogy, geology, rhetoric, moral philosophy, and political science. And also it was when, in the 75-foot by 22-foot engineering room, the cadets came face-to-face with the legend, Dennis Hart Mahan who pulled all their previous coursework together. He was from Norfolk and first came to West Point in 1820. Graduated at the top of his class of 1824, he was so talented he was appointed acting assistant professor of mathematics as a third classman. Lafayette himself took him into his own family. In the classroom, Mahan was aloof, demanding, He detested sloppy thinking, sloppy posture, and sloppy attitudes about duty. Possessed with a high, reedy, nasally congested voice, cadets nicknamed him Old Cobbin Sense. Yet, when he entered the classroom, cadets snapped. He was merciless in cross-examination, used sarcasm like a saber, and the ultimate horror was not being prepared, pulling a fess in his class. One of America's foremost minds, he hammered at speed of movement and reason and emphasized that cadets were not only warriors, but more importantly, engineers. As the final academic year ended, 59 of the original 122 graduated. Graduates ranked one through four were tabbed engineers. Five through eight, topographical engineers. Nine through 27 could pick from ordnance, artillery, infantry, mounted rifle, or dragoon. 28 on up could only choose between infantry, mounted rifle, or dragoon. Dragoon was regarded the absolute bottom, where, as one put it, a good square seat in the saddle was deemed of more importance than brains. Those 59 became the then largest graduating class in the points history. Charles Seaforth Stewart was number one. Virginia George Pickett finished dead last. Poor drawing skills dropped George McClellan to second in the graduating class. Despite that slip to second, he was regarded as the future star. He was one of the four who was named to the Engineer Corps along with Stuart, Charles E. Blunt, and John G. Foster. It is ironic that Stuart, number one in the class, later served under McClellan as a major in the Peninsula Campaign and did not attain the rank of colonel until after the Civil War. Of McClellan, it was said, We expected him to make a great record in the Army, and if opportunity presented, We predicted real military fame for him. In the top third, at 17, was the former constable, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. One fellow cadet remarked, if we stay here another year, old Jack will be the head of the class. He was not brilliant and no social butterfly, but his effort earned him universal respect. 
Another said of him, he was absolutely honest and kindly, intensely attending to his own business. With graduation came the real world and an artillery assignment. Jackson mused that gone were the days of my youth. He returned to Western Virginia the same way he came. He and three others stayed overnight at Brown's Hotel in Washington City. One of those, future Confederate General Cadmus Wilcox, returned to their room around 1 a.m. and could not believe his eyes and ears. The door was locked and a racket rang from within. Finally admitted to the room, he found Tom Jackson and another graduate belting out verses of the Benny Haven drinking song and dancing arm in arm in a barefoot backstep. Seen a symbolic last dance with innocence, for troubled times were on the horizon. War had been declared on Mexico May 13th. 1846, and 53 of the 59-member class would serve in the conflict. The time of learning and theory would now have practical application. American strategy featured a two-pronged invasion. Zachary Taylor would lead one army as it drove into northern Mexico, and the other, an amphibious landing organized under the command of Winfield Scott. Scott planned to follow Cortez's route to Mexico City. On March 9, 1847, some 260 miles east of the Mexican capital, Scott's 13,500 landed at Veracruz. Around him, Scott gathered West Pointers, like a captain from the class of 1829, Robert E. Lee. For many, not only the first true test of West Point's preparation for battle— but the baptism of fire for those who would later wear stars in the next war. Their collective cooperation and interaction, so ironic for the fratricidal affair that was to come. For example, in one military action, Lee officially commended one Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant, his commendation delivered by the man who, in July of 1863, would surrender to Grant at Vicksburg, John C. Pemberton. After the occupation of Veracruz, Scott's force moved inland past Cerro Gordo, Yalapa, and by May 15th, Mexico's second largest city, Puebla. There, Scott's force was 150 miles from Veracruz and 75 from Mexico City. In their next fight, Lee, another future Confederate officer Jeb Magruder and George McClellan were all instrumental in flanking Santa Ana's army out of Cherubusco. The battle lasted 17 minutes. Yet on the outskirts of Mexico City, the summer residence of the Aztec emperors, an objective that rose 150 to 200 feet, its foundation on phosphoric rock, a castle which guarded the road to the Mexican capital. It was... Chapultepec, and it was the strongest fort on the American continent. It was also home to Mexico's equivalent to West Point. Its inner walls were four feet thick and 20 feet high. It mounted 35 cannon. Logistically speaking, a daunting task for Scott, who was roughly 260 miles from his supply base. West Point training and leadership, crucial here. 
Just before 8 a.m. on September the 13th, 1847, 7,180 Americans assaulted some 15,000. In one segment of the American attack, Tom Jackson's two artillery pieces were penned down. His men, many of them volunteers. Undercover, Jackson alone tried to manhandle his pieces over a deep ditch. He got one over and tried to rally his men to bring the other. To assure them, he turned and shouted, Look, there is no danger. Then a cannonball passed between his legs. See, I am not hit. Finally, a sergeant edged forward, then others. The two guns back in action knocked out Mexican artillery that had pinned them and others down. Meanwhile, a scaling party stormed the bastion, and in the lead, there was Winfield Scott Hancock, West Point Class of 1844, and Class of 1842 grad James Longstreet, carrying the colors of the U.S. 8th Infantry. Beside them, Class of 1846 graduate George Pickett. As they charged, yet another West Point attendee, Lieutenant Lewis Armistead. He went down, then Longstreet. Pickett scooped up the colors and went up and over the walls, raced to the top of the castle, and after lowering the Mexican standard, hoisted the stars and stripes. Given what was to come in just 14 years, this type of united brotherhood while in battle was ironic, and as evidenced elsewhere, not unusual. Back in February of 1847, when Zachary Taylor won at Buena Vista, future Union Major General George H. Thomas and his future Civil War antagonist Braxton Bragg fought together as artillery officers. But back at Chapultepec, in the final push, West Pointers Thomas Jonathan Jackson and D.H. Hill pushed guns forward. So, too, was prominent Jackson's West Point classmate, Cadmus Wilcox, who took a bullet to his left side, but fortunately, the projectile hit the side of his Colt revolver. Though the blow spun him round, his revolver saved his life. The bullet was later found, as flat as a dollar and with a clear imprint of the pistol's maker and where it was made. The fall of Chapultepec meant the fall of Mexico City. Some 200,000 inhabitants submitted to Scott's American army, which numbered less than 6,000 effectives. The September 14th fall of Chapultepec cost Scott 130 killed, 703 wounded, and 20 missing. His campaign from Veracruz, nothing short of spectacular. An average of 10,000 Americans marched through 200,000 inhabitants, defended by some 30,000 enemy forces and over 100 artillery pieces. No more than 14,000 Americans ever fought in any one battle. Santa Ana's Mexican forces were superior in numbers, artillery, weight of metal thrown, small arms, cavalry, but U.S. forces outgeneraled, outmaneuvered, and outfought its opponents. Scott was emphatic, his victory aided by West Pointers, by young officers who commanded efficiently at levels of middle command. No question, his West Pointers, their first time in combat, had been the difference. 
523 from the Academy fought. 452 won brevet promotion. 49 were killed. 92 wounded. All in the most efficient war in U.S. history. 30 encounters and all won in less than a year and a half. 40,000 Mexicans captured, 1,000 cannon taken, 10 fortified strongholds captured, and a capital city. And of all those West Point classes that participated, the class of 1846 was prominent. 53 of 59 there, 37 breveted, 2 killed. Non-military events claimed 2 more, 11 wounded, 1 captured. They returned triumphantly to the United States. With the conflict ended, officers now tried to pick up with their careers and lives. We detail the story of a few. First, the second graduate in that class of 1846. Mary Ellen Marcy turned 11 in the summer of 1846. She was the daughter of Captain and Mrs. Randolph B. Marcy, their firstborn, Her father wanted a high station for her, and he, after an assignment and association on the Red River with George McClellan, had the Pennsylvanian on his personal shortlist for future son-in-law. And so, in April of 1854, taking his cue from Captain Marcy, McClellan asked for her hand. She turned him down. His frontal assault repulsed, He opted to, in military parlance, lay siege, but Secretary of War Jefferson Davis had other plans. He appointed McClellan to a special assignment and sailed him off as an observer to Europe's Crimean War. McClellan left April the 11th, 1855. While he was out of the country, a fellow West Pointer, A.P. Hill, class of 1847, and one who was serving on a coast survey in Washington City, met and fell for Ellen, or as she was nicknamed, Nellie. Her father at the time was on duty in Texas, but when he learned that Hill had asked for his daughter's hand and she had accepted, he was concerned. He knew Hill was worth about $10,000, but as he put it, something but not much. Wanting her to reject the proposal, he dared to write his daughter this. If you do not comply with my wishes in this respect, I cannot tell you what my feelings toward you would become. Do nothing, my dear child, without choosing between me and him. Then in Washington, a revelation. Mrs. Marcy learned and shared a story of A.P. Hill's supposed indiscretions while at West Point, one of which was a stayover in New York City, where he contracted gonorrhea and continued to suffer from it in the form of lingering prostatitis. That completed the sabotage of A.P. Hill's proposal. To his romantic rival's credit, McClellan kept a respectful distance during Hill's courtship. But with his friend's fall from grace, Little Mac became a suitor again. On Tuesday, October the 25th, 1859, McClellan proposed, while he, 
meddlesome Mrs. Marcy and Ellen were on McClellan's private railroad car as chief engineer of the Illinois Central Railroad. McClellan had waited six years, and in New York City on Tuesday, May 22, 1860, he took Miss Nellie as his bride. At the ceremony were classmates Truman Seymour and Cadmus Wilcox, Winfield Scott, Colonel Richard Delafield, Joseph E. Johnston, and, most interestingly, A.P. Hill. Given their futures, it is interesting to note one of McClellan's letters to Ellen before they were married. He wrote, I may yet play my part on the stage of the world's affairs and leave a name in history. But Nellie, whatever the future may have in store for me, you will be the chief actor in the play. You are my empire. The romantic drama between McClellan and A.P. Hill would have consequences down the road. During the June-July 1862 Seven Days Campaign down on the peninsula in Virginia, it was Hill's Light Division that repeatedly hit McClellan's Army of the Potomac with ferocious attacks. The story goes that at the start of yet another attack, a soldier in McClellan's army rolled out of his blanket and evidently aware the two generals had courted the same lady, cried out in disgust, My God, Nellie, why didn't you marry him? The draw of the West Point education and experience was powerful. Like all alums, its graduates drifted back to the place where innocence gave way to careers and destiny. One such alum returned in the summer of 1857. It was VMI professor Thomas Jonathan Jackson, and after losing his first wife, accompanied by his second, Anna. He introduced her to old professors and brother officers. They climbed Fort Putnam, his fortress of retreat and solitude when he was a cadet. Anna recalled, His delight was unbounded. It would be his last visit. One year after old Jack was gone, mortally wounded at Chancellorsville in May of 1863, another came back for a visit. It was the summer of 1864, and the uniform visitor in blue was by then a general without an army. Relieved of command of the Army of the Potomac in November of 1862, Major General George Brenton McClellan came back to be the principal orator for the dedication of a battle monument to all Union officers and enlisted men of the regular Army. For the event, thousands lined the streets and made the walk with him to Trophy Point. At 12.30, 35 guns barked. At 1 p.m., he took the stand and spoke of West Point with its large heart. The Mexican War demonstrated a revolution in warfare, and thanks to West Point, its professionalization. Even as early as 1833, over half the officers in the regular army were West Pointers. That growing trend during and particularly after the Civil War upset some. Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, remarked that Alexander, Caesar, and Napoleon never went to West Point. Radical Republican Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio opined, I cannot help thinking that there is something wrong about their whole institution. Wade was particularly upset that, in his opinion, too many West Pointers were Democrats 
and were soft on slavery. He and those of that camp thought the academy was a breeding ground for incompetence and aristocrats. Another radical Republican, Senator Zachariah Chandler of Michigan, even moved for Congress to get rid of the academy. He stated, the institution has produced more traitors within the last 50 years than all the institutions of learning and education that have existed since Judas Iscariot's time. Indeed, 304 graduates went south during the Civil War, but 162 Southerners remained loyal. Fortunately, most Americans did not agree with Chandler. In fact, class of 1862 graduate Morris Schaff reflected, West Point friendships did more at the close of the war than any other group to heal the scars. It is a fact that in the 1870s, the AOG, the Association of Graduates, was created to do just that. And never was that more evident than May 30th, 1885, when 58-year-old George B. McClellan returned for the very first time to the battlefield at Antietam. It was dedication day, and also, for the first time, many who wore the gray attended in large numbers. The former general delivered the principal oration. Before those that gathered, McClellan said, I am glad, inexpressibly glad, that I have been permitted to live until the fame and exploits of these magnanimous rivals have become the common property of our people. Five months later, the star of the class of 1846 was gone. Even as he lay dying of heart disease, his last words reflected his undying love for Nellie. He turned to his physician, tell her I am better now. Then he slipped away. As they lowered him into his place of rest in Trenton on the banks of the Delaware River, there were West Pointers in attendance. Former Union Generals Winfield Scott Hancock, William Franklin, and Confederate Joseph E. Johnston. Little Mac had failed to fulfill all that he personally hoped for, but he did not fail his friends, his brothers-in-arms. In all, ten members of that storied West Point class of 1846 became Confederate generals, twelve Union generals. Here, a sampling of some that wore stars on their collars or shoulders. Ambrose Powell Hill began with the class of 1846, but his stop in New York City cost him a year. He graduated 15th of 38 in the class of 1847. Back in the fall of 1860, Hill's frequent prostatitis forced upon him a desk job in Washington City with a U.S. Coast Guard survey. In February of 1861, he, a non-slaveholder and moderate on secession, resigned his commission and, as the saying went at the time, went south. His light division in the Army of Northern Virginia was storied. However, his success as a division commander was not matched at Corps Command. One week before Lee's army surrendered, he was shot and killed at Petersburg. In essence, on April the 2nd, 1865, he died with the Confederacy. 
He was one of three Confederate generals associated with the class of 1846 who died or was mortally wounded. Then there was David Rumpf Jones. In the class of 46, he finished 41st of 59. They called the South Carolinian neighbor. In autumn of 1860, neighbor Jones was garrisoned on the nation's western frontier as a U.S. officer. Then he, too, went south. One month after Sharpsburg, he suffered a heart attack. Three months later, in January of 1863, he passed. In that sentimental time, some said he died of a broken heart. Others, because of an act at Antietam, when his men killed the commander of the 11th Connecticut, Colonel Henry W. Kingsbury, his own beloved brother-in-law. John Adams graduated 25th in the 59 of that class. Back in the fall of 1860, the native Tennessean, light neighbor Jones, was stationed on the western frontier. Resigning his commission, he joined the Confederate Army and found himself in the Army of Tennessee. On the last day of November 1864, another West Pointer, John Bell Hood, class of 1853, ordered Adams forward at Franklin in a doomed assault. He would be one of 12 generals cut down that terrible day. He was found within the lines of the enemy, pinned under his dead horse. He had been shot nine times. To Union soldiers, his last words included, It is the fate of a soldier to die for his country. In blue, from that class, John Gray Foster, who graduated fourth, as we've made mention. In the 1850s, the native of New Hampshire returned to West Point to serve as an instructor in engineering. In that last few months of 1860, he was doing what he had been trained to do, engineering in charge of fortifications in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. And so he would be at Fort Sumter when the war began and was breveted for his service there, as well as Roanoke Island, New Bern, and Savannah. When he died in 1874, he was still serving as a lieutenant colonel in the Corps of Engineers. 19th in his class, Vermont's Truman Seymour returned to West Point where he taught drawing. He saw action in the Seminole Wars and later, during the Civil War, was breveted for action at Fort Sumter, South Mountain, Antietam, Petersburg, and overall war service. After he retired in 1876, he moved to Europe, where he became an accomplished painter. He died in Florence, Italy, in 1891. In the fall of 1860, New Yorker George Stoneman, who graduated 33rd in that class, found himself in the southwestern United States, stationed at Fort Brown in Texas. During the Civil War, he led several Union raids, one of which cut through western North Carolina. After the conflict, he moved west, where he became a politician and served as the 15th governor of California. He passed in Buffalo, New York, in September of 1894. In autumn of 1860, Samuel Sturgis, like so many of his classmates, found himself on the frontier. 
The officer, who finished 32nd of 59, was in command of Fort Smith, Arkansas, when most of his officers resigned to join the Confederacy the following spring. In June of 1864, he lost badly to Confederate Nathan Bedford Forrest at Bryce's Crossroads. Afterwards, he participated in the Great Plains Indian Wars. He died in St. Paul, Minnesota, in late September of 1889. Finishing dead last in the class of 1846, Virginian George Pickett, in the last months of 1860, was completing assignments that had him in Texas, Virginia, and Washington Territory. In Confederate service, he was a good brigade commander, but faltered in division command. In fact, Lee blamed him for the defeat at Five Forks on the first day of April, 1865. After a post-war meeting between Pickett, John Mosby, and Lee, Pickett blurted, That old man destroyed my division. Later, he became an insurance agent, dying in Norfolk in 1875. Jesse Reno, 8th in the 1846 class of 59. In the fall of 1860, the man who was born in Wheeling, then Virginia, commanded the Mount Vernon Arsenal in Alabama until it was captured by Confederate forces in early January of 1861. Like his classmate, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Reno, would not survive the war. He was shot down at South Mountain in September of 1862, the only Union general in the class of 1846 to be killed during the conflict. Reno, Nevada is named for him. Cadmus Marcellus Wilcox, 54th of the 59 that graduated that year of 1846. After graduation from West Point, he, like so many of his classmates, served also on the frontier. A groomsman at Grant's wedding, Cadmus Wilcox was ever popular before, during, and after the war. No bullet ever found him. He died a natural death in December of 1890 at his funeral. Four Confederate and four Union officers served as his pallbearers. Each member of that West Point class, a story, a walking novel, with lives indeed so memorable that sometimes it's hard to separate the marble from the mortal man. And the grounds at the United States Military Academy was their common denominator, their springboard for careers, careers that helped define, shape, and heal a nation, all at a place that continues to conjure up memories as to the Academy's contributions to leadership during the years that comprised the American Civil War. Of 60 Civil War battles, 55 had West Point graduates in command on both Union and Confederate sides. In the remaining five of those 60, an Academy graduate commanded one of the two. The son of one American Civil War Medal of Honor winner, Douglas MacArthur, once said, Old soldiers never die. They just fade away. For the class of 1846, indeed, they have passed on. But the echo of what they did continues to resonate in the quads and halls on the plateau high atop the west bank of the Hudson. For the members of that class and so many more, their careers and lives dedicated to a pledge, 
duty, honor, country. Yet, it was their twisted fate that duty and honor required them to choose one country or another. That forced them to embrace a reality that required comrades and friends to be deemed enemies. It was the spring of 1864, and two military titans, Lee, Grant, and their respective armies were locked in deadly combat. For two days in early May, they inflicted and absorbed tremendous losses at the Battle of the Wilderness. Afterwards, Grant ordered the Army of the Potomac to the southeast, triggering Lee's Army of Northern Virginia to do the same. It was a race to the next strategic crossroads, and Lee's Confederates barely won it. Soon, there would be another fight, and the violence that followed shocked both armies. As one Mississippian put it, I don't expect to go to hell, but if I do, I am sure that hell can't beat that terrible scene. Next time we gather, the ghastly, bloody collision at Spotsylvania Courthouse. Down Fort Fisher and Wilmington, North Carolina way, we welcome another who has joined as a patron of what we are doing here at Threads of the National Tapestry. Jeremy Jones, thank you, and thank you for your kind words. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>